Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mumbrella listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. Joining me to break down your week in media and marketing is Mumbrella's editor Vivian Kelly. Hello. And today we're also joined by TV Black Box editor Rob McKnight. I know, I feel like I'm cheating on my podcast by being here, but I'm a big fan of the Mumbrella podcast, so I'm, I'm sort of a little bit thrilled. It's the first crossover episode. I love it. That's it what is. it should be, right? It's a crossover. We're just waiting for our invitation back, Rob. Ah, yes, it's in the mail. Absolutely. Well, we are recording this from the Swiss Hotel in Sydney, where we're currently holding Mumbrella's B2B Marketing Summit, so... Please excuse any background noise, although as we have locked the door, it'll only be people hammering to try to be allowed in. Yeah, we're like in a big security fortress here. The doors have been locked. We can't get out. Uh, how long are you keeping this for here, Tim? Well, it all depends <laughs> on how interesting the next 40 minutes or so are. <laughs> this week, we'll be talking about... Rove fails to bring back Saturday night. Seven puts its faith in pooches. Fairfax journos turn on their new CEO. Should the media industry be worried about redundancies? And One Three Cabs is the official partner of Booty Calls. So, before we get into the week's topics, let's introduce you to Rob McKnight. Now, this morning I was chatting to Viv, or possibly a couple of hours um, ago. Viv said, what sort of person is Rob? (laughs) Oh God, what a loaded question. Well, my answer was TV nerd. Yes. And I, the the first time I remember you crossing my radar was you were still at nine. You were a promo producer, but Mm -hmm. you were experimenting with, with, um, I think you called it internet streaming at the time. Yes, that's right. And you did, and I remember going on and being a pundit. I can't remember what I talked about, Mm -hmm. but you, you know, you, you, you were using Nine's facilities to do something really quite early and quite experimental, sort of talking about, you know, the, it seems quite a sort of, you know, everyday thing now, but, you know, sort of streaming a kind of effectively a panel show. Yeah, it was called, it was called Nine Stream Live. And I was really proud of that Snappy little show. Snappy name. Uh, yeah. Um, hashtag Nine Stream Live, actually. <laughs> and we were doing this little show from the automated studio. It, it took no resources to do it except the time and effort I put in. And uh, we actually developed a following so much so that when Studio 10 went to Adelaide, um, I was in the control room or the makeshift control room and the floor manager came out and said, Rob, there's some people out here who who want to meet you. And I'm like, what? And I walked out. They were all Nine Stream Live fans and they'd come to Studio 10's recording to <laughs> to have a chat, basically. Well, I remember Nine Stream Live because, it, again, it, it came across clearly you were really passionate and interested mm-hmm. about the making of television. Yes. I remember you did one where I think you were able to cross to the Nine Chopper and oh, all that sort of thing. In one of them, I crossed to London and did an interview with Pete Stefanovic on location outside. One of the royals was having a baby. It could have been Mary or I, I can't remember. And we were it was an actual satellite cross. It wasn't even a Degero. And it, I was thinking, they're letting me spend all this money. This is awesome. But um, it, it was a great experiment. And it was sort of the genesis for Studio 10 as well, because it was that panel discussion crossing here and there. And so when Adam Boland asked me to go and do Studio 10, there were ideas I took from all of that that I, I, I and build some new ones in, of course, as you make a show bigger. But there's certainly some genesis of Studio 10 from Nine Stream Live. Well, presumably it put you on the map, really, for the sort of TV production community because Adam, yes. Adam Boland had been sort of the head of, of, of morning television at seven, was brought over seven to to launch a breakfast offering and a mm. mid-morning offering, and uh, which was Studio 10, which was yes. was your baby. It was my baby. Um, he sort of created an outline and then it was up to me to really 
put, put fill in the detail basically and make it work and evolve the show. And if you look at episode one to the episode when I left, they are very different shows actually because it wasn't a revolution; it was an evolution over time. We started seeing what didn't work and what worked, and we we I just kept nudging all the time and evolving and seeing what worked as far as audience flow and that's why 9.30 became a big turn on point and we we would tailor segments to the 9.30 slot and so it it, it was great. When I left it was doing 100,000 viewers a day which is awesome. And Rob, how high pressure is it working in an environment like that? Hmm. I'm not sure if you're aware but Zoe, who's sitting next to you pushing our buttons on the podcast, was an intern at Studio 10 at one point and we asked her what it was like and she said you had a bit of a reputation for being, and I quote, terrifying. Yeah, well, Zoe's sitting right next to me. I'm <laughs> going to bring her in here. Zoe, was I terrifying? Not for me. Zoe, you look terrified. Oh, she's, she's pulling back now. Zoe, you look terrified. <laughs> oh, well, funny that, Tim. <laughs> I have been thrown under the bus and all. Um. No, I mean, I did work on the 1,000th episode. Oh, that was a big episode. It was a big episode, and I recall them not ordering enough food for all of the media staff who were there to watch the 1,000th episode. And so myself and another intern were sent to run to IGA (laughs) to buy more food. (laughs) That's a true story. And, you know, the thing is, there are times when you give instructions, like you've got to understand that this is imp- this 1,000th episode I was treating like a, a primetime special. And even though it was a little morning show on the number three network, this was our big primetime special. We were celebrating something that everyone thought was impossible. No one expected us to get to 100 episodes, let alone 1,000. Well, I remember, I think one time I heard from you very early on, and I only know this because I was going back through old emails because I knew uh, we were Is this going to be about when you wrote about us getting zero in Perth? Yeah, zero in Perth, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, wow, you do remember. Oh, yes. Yeah. That was on was that on day 1 that you for, for a 15 minute segment. Yes. You, and of course it was one of those things because all of the rival networks of course look for bad news yes. about rivals. So we'll pull out data like that mm-hmm. and then share it with the trade press. So somebody pointed out that thing so i i i the thing was i couldn't find an angry email so it must have been a phone call i can't remember which but i do remember crossing your radar and the fact that we'd really reported <laughs> this number i don't know that i often wrote angry emails or i'd never abused journalists or anything like that and i think that's why when i left 10 i actually had a good relationship with the journalistic community because i i wasn't like that i might get annoyed at an article or something but usually i found that if you treated people with respect they gave it back to you and yeah, that's what passion, i found passionate i think is the <laughs> yeah I would, uh, I, I definitely I, I passionate, guess. definitely would have been times. And look, going on about the food being lost and me <laughs> demanding that everyone go to IGA and get more food, that's actually pretty tame, to be I honest. Mean, <laughs> I was like, come on, Zoe, the IGA is like 200 metres down the street. Is it that hard? Have you been there? <laughs> Do you, I actually have been in the IGA near the Channel 10 studios. I can't remember why, but I have one, I have been in, in there. In Zoe's defence, she didn't say she thought you were terrifying. Right. That was the general perception on the floor that perhaps you could be terrifying. If, uh, you know what? Because I was passionate and if you weren't listening, like the food situation, <laughs> I'd been very um, clear in that we needed food, this is an event, It needs the tables need to be sorted, and then you turn up on the day and there's like two chips to rub together <laughs> for, you know, people. It's just not good enough, right? And so I had high expectations. To me, the, the thing you had to do when you were running that show was you had to give the audience a reason for coming every minute because we were the challenger brand. And so you really had to make sure that if someone flicked over because – 
Nine and seven were the defaults. They had the leadings from the breakfast shows. So if they came to us, we couldn't be serving up crap. We had to be delivering something special each and every time. And so when we workshop these ideas, if they if they were half-assed, I would get upset about that because it was putting everyone's job on the line. I always felt Studio 10 was never a safe show um, because it was always on the chopping block. And so I felt we had to prove every day that we deserved to be there by getting an audience and driving revenue. I think one of my favourite TV moments of all time, and I remember watching it live, we all watched it live in the office. The day you had the crossover of... Ita on a boat with Sam Mack <laughs> and you were you you were on you were on the, the the water taxi I guess it was probably from Manly because it was probably it, crossing it was over from, from, wake the up. Other, from wake up and and at first I thought it it looked like a stunt as everything went wrong yes. but it, but it was did it did it break down or yes, it did. to get the water ta- so what had happened is that um it was when I had taken over when Bolo had gotten sick and I had to take over both shows and that's a book in itself but um, they wanted ITAR because they Studio 10 was outperforming Bre- uh, Wake Up, which is not what should happen. The morning show should not outrate the breakfast show. So we thought, well, ITAR's the draw card. We'll get her on as their guest tweeter of the day. They had a segment I, I'm struggling to remember. And I said, okay, we'll do that. And what we'll do is we'll turn it into an event where we're getting ITAR back to Studio 10. And so the water taxi seemed like, okay, that's going to be 20 minutes of fun and then she'll come in. And, of course, it really did break down. And everyone's like, this. first of all, there was one point where Sam Mack nearly lost Ita over the side of the boat as she was getting onto the water taxi. We all thought the, the taxi started coming away from the pier and we all thought, oh, she's going to fall in. And then um, she gets into the boat, they're travelling along, and we keep doing crosses and it breaks down. And there is a shot of Ita sitting in the back of the boat getting very sick because because it wasn't moving, it was moving and all it was, about. Wasn't it beyond the heads at this point? Yes. So it was pretty choppy. Yeah, it was choppy. And anyway, they ended up getting the boat towed to an area where um, the head of production went and picked her up and drove her to the um, the studio. And it was right near the end, so it had been going on. The, I mean, I could not have planned this any better. She still thinks to this day I did plan it, like you. I turned up and gave her a bottle of champagne and... and this wasn't on audio, but you can see me saying this to her. I wish, I went into her ear and I said, Ita, I'm sorry, but this was such good television. <laughs> in that moment when you thought she might fall into the water, were you panicked or were you thinking this would be great oh, television? There's lots of things I want to do, but I don't <laughs> want to be the one who kills Ida Butro. So, no, I, I and, and Ita and I were at the very beginning of our relationship yeah. and I consider Ida a very dear friend now. And, no, I wouldn't have wanted to kill Ida Butro, <laughs> I can tell you that. And, hey, I'm um, just talking to Sam Mack. I mean, obviously he's he's really made his name now over mm. at Seven as, as as their weather guy. Um, I know he was more associated with Wake Up, but um, great talent. Great talent. And he did a lot on Studio 10 as well, and we often had him after that doing a lot of things with Ita. Um, he was very, very talented. And I, I even the idea that he was up for the Gold Logie, I love that because he also loves the medium. And so you can see that with the kind of stuff he does. It's not half-assed. It's, he's giving to each and every cross. He's thinking them through. What can I do? How can I make this a bit more com- compelling? And I, I think he deserves everything he's getting. Now, we should talk about TV Black Box, which is yes. your next project post Leaving Turn, and we will touch on Leaving Turn as well. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I mean, I love the the intro when you listen to the. It's a website, but it's also a, a podcaster, a washed up producer with nothing to lose. Yeah, that's the McKnight Tonight theme. <laughs> and I just well, when when it all happened, and I started the idea of doing podcasting, I just thought. Well, tell you what, let's let's go to where it all happened okay. first, shall we? Yeah, let's do it in logical order. So, <laughs> you you you. you you know, Studio 10 seemed to be, for the outside, seemed to be going incredibly well. And it was. You know, it was pretty much, I think, 10's only daytime hit. Yeah. And then suddenly it, it blew up and you were out. And it, from the outside, it looked a bit weird. Yeah, look, there's a lot I can't talk about because of the settlement. I thought you had nothing to lose, Rob. Well... Legal. Well, <laughs> let me tell you something that I have been through the ring rigor with Ten's legal department. But hey, Ten and I are all good friends now, and I, I'm I'm glad about that. We've all um, gone through the hardship of this the breakup, you know, and it was a bit of breakup, you know. Um, I, I would argue there were politics involved and um, not being liked by the right people, and you know what that happens in TV. Um, so. Anyway, yes, and, and then we had the Brussels sprouts incident and, you know, all the yeah, shenanigans. No, the Brussels sprouts incident, it, so what's been reported, I think, was that at the Christmas, the cast Christmas party. No, it team... was a Christmas shoot. It was right. We were shooting a video clip. Right. So it wasn't a party, so they shouldn't have been drinking, and there was drinking. Right, okay. And, uh, yes, Denise did. Denise has admitted this on the record. This is Denise Drysdale? Mm-hmm. Through a Brussels sprout, which, not one, okay, lots, a number of Brussels, which hit Ita, uh, hit Ita, and they were cooked, buttered Brussels sprouts, right? And uh, I actually have the footage of that, <laughs> um, but yeah, and they left a big stain on Ita, and Ita is a trooper; she keeps going on, but it was very unprofessional, shouldn't have happened, um, and uh, there there was a divide within Studio Ten, and I think that became obvious um, between where the presenters um, sat. But um, when when I was asked, they I think the biggest mistake they made was they turned their back on what was making Studio Ten work, and there were a bit of politics involved in that um, because there had been there had been some ideas of changing the show, and I was resistant to those ideas. I figured I'm getting a hundred thousand a day. I, I built the show up. I understand this show, and what you're wanting us to do is go back to a carbon copy of the other ones, you know. Um, and so that's what they started doing when I left. And I've never seen ratings dissipate so quickly. Usually the rule in television is when you make changes, there's usually a six-month lag between when you see the positive or negative effects of that because it takes the audience time to to realise. Um, within a month, Studio 10 had pretty much uh, dropped a third of its audience and is now sitting still to this day at half its audience. It's doing about 47,000, 50,000 viewers. And I've got to say, I would actually like to see it go on now because... Um, I invested so much of my time and effort into that show. And, and look, you know, you look in hindsight and say, did I do everything perfect? Maybe I was terrifying because I was so passionate about it. And, uh, you know, you, you, you self-reflect when you've been through the ringer of something so public, you know, um, people leave jobs or get fired all the, all the time. And it's not in the paper. It's not on websites. And you, I had to live that. And it really did have an effect, which is ultimately why. I've taken the year off in the Gold Coast. It's given me time to breathe and realise there are other things. And it's and doing TV Black Box allows me to still have my passion about television because I am still passionate about it. But the people who took over from me showed that they didn't understand the show, but they have a new executive producer in Tara Simininu. I can't say her last name, sorry. <laughs> I've never met her. That's why I, I don't know her that well. And um, she seems to be getting the confidence of the show back up. She is doing her own thing. But the biggest problem is she's inherited a show that was broken 
not when it was at its prime. So, and because she was overseas, she hasn't seen why it connected with the audience. And but having said that, she's got to do her own thing. And I, after all the heart sweat and tears I put into that show, I would love to see it go on for another 20 years because I would feel some part of the success of that, that it got that far. Because getting through the first year, I think, was one of the greatest challenges of Studio 10. Well, let's talk um, TV Black Box. Do you – I suppose I think of you as as a product for people within the industry as opposed to – consumer yeah. tv fans is is that how you think of it i think it is and we have a very big media following although we are transcending that now um the podcast is probably still very much a media podcast but the website is uh getting great numbers for what i think what are great numbers for a um early podcast we're still only seven months in and uh, you, you'll know if this is a good number or not but we got a google thing that said we had 5.6 million impressions impressions uh, in in the last month, and I sort of figured that sounds pretty good. Fifth, that sounds like a good number. Doesn't that does it? sound like a good number. It's got me a bit rattled, Rob. <laughs> coming for my job, I didn't realise this was a job interview to replace me. <laughs> but but not all impressions equate to clicks and all that kind of stuff. So I fully understand that. But we have been on a steady growth, and I think we're building a following based on the fact we get exclusives because we've been sitting outside of the publicity fed machine. And there are a few uh, of you working together on it as well, aren't Yes, there? we've got Steve Malk and Karen Perry, and we've got Aaron Ryan in Perth uh, who contributes as well. And we get guest contributors as well. Um, and it's a little bit of a mishmash at the moment. It's certainly not a well-oiled machine like Mumbrella where, you know, you, you have your full team working full-time on it. We're all doing it outside of other things. Um, but what we're not doing is just waiting for a press release, and I'm not saying everyone else does that either, but because of the contacts I've got, when I'm getting fed bullshit by the networks, I know when they're feeding me bull- BS, sorry, I <laughs> shouldn't swear. <laughs> um, uh, and, and so I know when to go around that, you know, and, and I I'm I wear my heart on my sleeve, and I think that's probably the biggest criticism anyone could have about me is that I, I really are, I am passionate and I've been self-reflecting on this. This is why I can talk about it in the third person in a way. <laughs> but I, 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 I do annoy people because I push and I strive. And um, I, there's part of me that goes, well, shouldn't we all be pushing and striving for the best p- product we can possibly give? But then you've also got to realise the, the reality of people's lives. And, and I almost killed myself for that job, which is why I was a bit bitter the way 10 did everything. You know, um, I thought there could have been a better way to do it. But... We've, as I said, we've made amends and we've moved on and good luck to everyone. Um, but I probably expected the same amount of passion that I had for Studio 10 from my team and everyone else around me. And, and there was that. Don't get me wrong. There was. But not everyone was drinking the Kool-Aid or, as I've now known from my true crime podcast, it's actually Flavor 8. Now, would you ever go into a TV network job again? Or are you done on that now? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. To be honest, um, I'm certainly not rushing to get any kind of job. Uh, it would have to be the right job. And I really actually am enjoying life on the Gold Coast. It's given me perspective, which is a very strange thing. Um, and the reason TV Black Box came about was because I was working at News Corp. And I, I missed that television thing. And, and, and to be honest, News Corp was great, but it wasn't the right job for me um, because it wasn't that creative television type of role. And so it sort of led to me getting into a very dark place and I need, I just needed to get out of that. And thankfully, 
um, I had the support of my family. We moved to the Gold Coast. We've restarted our lives, and it re- really has been like a restart. My my youngest child, if I went away for a week, she'd just say, bye, Dad. Now I've come down here for a couple of days, and she's got her arms around me. She's tearing up. She's crying. You know, I'm trying to drop her off at school, and she said, don't go, don't go. You know, my Is this re- good or bad? I'm, I'm trying to No, it's it good. He, he's saying that his, his children are, are used to having him around more. Yes. So it's more of a – it's yes. more traumatic I've, and shocking when he disappears to come on the Umbrella car. That's well, right. I'm, I'm sorry that we've, tra- yeah, yeah, we've traumatised your children <laughs> by having you here today. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's a good thing. And I, I say that as a way of saying my relationship with my family has changed. And I think – when you get so invested in what you're doing from a work perspective and you lose sight of the personal, you've lost that balance. And there, ha- there always has to be a balance because we're all trying to make money and we're all trying to have careers, but you have to make sure you're doing it in a smarter way. If I was to go on EP Studio 10 right now, I would be a different executive producer than what I was when I was doing the job. And I think I could still get the same results. I could still have the same vibrant show, but I would be managing it in a different way. There's been a lot of self-reflection since coming off that, and I think that's a life lesson that I will take away with me forever. Well, next, Rove flops again. Do we have any time for that? (laughs) (laughs) We've got heaps of time. So after just two weeks, Saturday Night Rove, or Bring Back Saturday Night, as it was originally called, has been cancelled, with Tan and Rove Mohanis reportedly agreeing that the audiences just weren't there in a cosy, collaborative conversation between <laughs> both parties. Now, the first Sounds very lovely. <laughs> it does sound very lovely. Now, that first week, uh, 244,000 Metro viewers, of which I, I, I know that Viv was one and I was one, because we were texting back and forth during that first episode. I was one. So was Rob as well. <laughs> And then by the second week, 138. I was not one of them for the second episode. I didn't last Mm. into week two. No, me neither. So Rove spoke to our media reporter, Hannah Blackiston, at the time before launch and seemed pretty confident that the audiences were hungry for something to watch on a Saturday night other than sport or BBC Murder Mystery Returns. Um, Rob, where did it all go wrong? It was a shit show. Um, End of conversation. (laughs) (laughs) The problem was, and I really, uh, I agree with Rove. I think there is an appetite for variety television back on Australia. We have done the variety so well in this country. You said on your podcast that you did a pilot yourself when you were at Studio 10. Yes, it was called uh, Saturday Night from Studio 10. Uh, It was a podcast that Peter Meekin uh, helped me push through to give us the opportunity to do it. Um, and it was really well re- received by everyone. Everyone said, yeah, that feels like a variety show. I'm thinking Joe Hildebrand in a shiny silver jacket. Not, or... not quite, but it, it did have – it had Joe, Sarah, um, Denise and Jessica Rowe. And we did things well, – No, John O'Coleman. Surely oh, he was he's there. No, John, John o was there, of course. John, John o was doing voiceovers. That's what John o was doing. He was doing the, um, the voiceovers, the Judith Lucy or the John Blackman role. And um, we had segments like Jessica Rowe overcoming her fear of snakes – so she has a genuine fear of snakes. We went and got her training of dealing with snakes and then brought a python onto the set for her to show that she had overcome her fear of snakes live in front of the studio. And so it was real variety. It was that kind of variety. We, we, um, we reunited viewers. We, we um, had someone in the audience who we plucked out and we said, now we've got your mum. You haven't seen your mum or, or your sister. Sorry, it was we. You haven't seen your sister in twenty years. She lives in New Zealand, but we've arranged a live cross to you. 
to her. And so we did the live cross and we said, oh, how great is it? And she's crying and it's so great to see. And we said, well, guess what? She's actually here in the building. And so we brought her out from the little room she was in, brought her in for the big reuniting. And so it was variety and it was that true essence of variety. I think what we're serving up is too edgy. It's not knowing its audience. And if you look, it's a 7.30 time slot and some of the jokes, we had masturbation jokes, we had lots of swearing, and I just didn't think, what audience are you going for here, you know? And I don't think the show knew what it was. I, I think Rove, I actually think Rove is very funny. I, he's got an audience, and that's why you saw so many, not so many people, but a chunk of people go to him on a Saturday night. But the cast beside him weren't great either. It was a bizarre dynamic for me because I think Justin Hamilton's a really funny yes. comedian, but he was sort of relegated to weirdly sitting at a back table, yes. which wasn't explained, yeah. monitoring the live eBay auction that they had going on. I don't think they were using his comedic talents enough, his timing enough, his wit enough. He he was mm. just sort of there without context, without a role, and to have such a big supporting team that didn't really make sense to a consumer yes. was really bizarre to me because Rove's old shows were so good at using mm. other comedians and Hamish and Andy had such a platform on Rove yeah. Live and so did other up-and-coming comedians. It was weird to have someone as talented and TV-friendly as Justin relegated to a back corner with a beer. I know. Well, you were a bit of an expert on Rove in his radio, his short radio <laughs> career as well, which he obviously was thrown together with Sam Frost from the Bachelor and Bachelorette. Chemistry test people. Yes. Chemistry test. Look, tests. he was one of the many, many people who tried to take over on Today FM Breakfast after Kyle and Jackie O uh, left to to Kiss FM. And Rob's right, it's, it's a chemistry thing. I was such a fan of Rove back in the day, in his mm. Rove Live heyday. He, he didn't work on radio with Sam Frost, but she didn't – I've been speaking to Jules Lund recently who was another – failed Today FM Breakfast host, and, and he said, you know, Sam could have been great talent, Sam Frost. She Australia loved her when she was mm. heartbroken after The Bachelor. She had good stories to tell, but they just didn't train her enough to put her in front of you the media. You can't throw her into a situation like that and expect an untrained person to be a media professional, and that's a huge gig, having to give yourself over five days a, a week. At 6 o'clock in the morning yeah. as well to be on at that time. So. I think Rob's right. Rove has a place, but this show wasn't it. And Judith mm. Lucy, again, very divisive character in that, you know, she's a female over 50 and therefore divisive. But also her jokes didn't work at 7.30 on a Saturday. It's, well, and that's, that's the, too much. That comes back to the family stuff. But the she got some praise about what she was delivering as far as the show. But it was obviously a show in turmoil behind the scenes too because the set designer – was fired the week before it launched because the set looked too much like Hey Hey It's Saturday. And the problem was he delivered like, or the, the person delivered like 14 designs of which they picked the one they wanted. They built it and then they went, too much Hey Hey It's Saturday, get someone else. And so when when you're not decisive on what the show is, that's a problem. And when you don't understand what you're trying to deliver to the audience. Surely they had time, though, because this first premiered in 10's pilot exactly. week last year. That's when it should have been ironing out its kinks. That's mm. the whole point of pilot week. And and that's when it was called uh, Bring Back Saturday, Saturday Night. Night. They had months to workshop this, get feedback from consumers. That's what a pilot is. That's mm. the whole premise of it. And then they brought it back for its alleged six-episode run. And it, that... <laughs> It felt like the pilot, but we've already done that. The pilot was better. I think the pilot was better than what they actually broadcast, which either says maybe too many people meddled in the actual series. 
Will Rove have a future on television or radio again, do you think? Uh, I think Rove uh, is a bit like Grant Denyer. Uh, Yes, he will. You know, some people think that Rove and Grant are TV poison and ratings poison. They're not my words. They're the words of astute Mumbrella commenters and observers. But (laughs) they do continue to get gigs and get opportunities. And it's worth noting as well while we're – slamming Rove that behind the scenes he's had success with roving enterprises and with Oh he's he's with he's the got project. the money coming in. You yeah. don't need to worry about that. <laughs> he does not need our thoughts and prayers. He's doing all right. But so he does have good relationships and I, I think this will be this will be a blow for him, but I reckon yeah, we'll we'll, we'll see him again in, in some way. Well next, more programming announcements. Seven partners with Rebel Wilson on Pooch Perfect. So, shortly after signing a contract, you heard that sigh, to host (laughs) Amazon's new comedy program, LOL, Last One Laughing, Aussie actor Rebel Wilson has signed on to host Seven's latest foray into competitive reality television, Pooch Perfect. Um, I think this is James Warburton's... I know he wouldn't have made the, you know, thought it up and come in and said, guys, I've got a great idea. Let's announce this straight away. But effectively, it's become his first commission. Look, and it's interesting timing for James Warburton, the new CEO of Seven, because he spoke to me five days into his appointment when they released their financial results to the ASX. And he admitted that Seven skews too old and has ageing mm. war horses in its uh, programming and it needs to get that younger demographic back. It needs to get back to Heartland Australia, whoever that is, and connect audiences with the type of content that they believe Seven can produce. Pooch Perfect, <sighs> I don't know if it fits that bill. Uh, it wouldn't be James's responsibility but – It's worth noting Seven already has a dog program, dogs behaving in brackets, very close brackets, badly. That in prime time got 484,000 Metro viewers I'm thinking it was probably quite cheap to make, though. It probably was, but, you know, it's getting smashed by the block on nine, smashed by Australian Survivor on ten. But it's a clip show from existing material. Um, The thing I would say about this, it's not James's first commission because, uh, if I can put this plug in, TV Black Box broke this story uh, (laughs) a month or so ago that it was called Australia's Top Dog Groomer. Uh, was coming and we we got that story out and then uh, they were casting for it. So it's been around for a little while. It's unfortunate that this is that I hadn't thought about it this way that it's James's first <laughs> public commission. But the fact is, you've got to accept that for, from his point of view. While he's in there re-energizing the team, and that's what I'm hearing that the people at Seven have been re-energized by him coming in, and there is a new excitement about getting back in there and giving things a go and and spending money on quality programming. So I, I don't think we're seeing the full benefit of what James is going to bring to Channel 7. But this show, if you look at some of the, the shows 7 have had when it's been cats make you laugh out loud, and these things have actually done really well. And with Rebel Wilson, who I'm sure was not inexpensive, mm. to come on to this show, that's a name that might just get people to take a look and apparently the transformations of the dogs it's it's not just doing a bit of frizz apparently it's full-on transformation so there might be a bit of um people just wanting to see the train wreck i I don't know but um 
This is actually one that I think could do okay. I mean, when I saw the proposal, I thought, crap, 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 you know, <laughs> and, and the viewers thought the same. But this one actually could be something. And Seven have pulled a couple of those out um, uh, throughout the years, you know, when, when they've needed those hits because it's going to be a tough back half. We know that they've already moved uh, Beverly's Between Two Worlds to 2020 because they want to give it the best possible chance to survive. The question is how far will they go in the back half of 2019 to try and re- regain number one and stay in number one position? Do they take the hit and put some shows on that maybe aren't ball terrors but uh, will actually get them, a, you know, get them along the way? They've got very strong news in current affairs and sport, but will they have the programming for the back half of 2019 or do they go strong with 2020 and try to make that the story? Because James isn't going to be judged on 2019. Now, I've just talked with trying to work out the time. So you, when you joined 10, James would have already been fired, is yes, that right? Yes, he was gone. So you've never actually worked directly with him? But... I James may not remember me, but I did have some dealings with him when we set up the morning show. Um, at seven. At seven, yes, because I was uh, specifically in charge of the advertorials and he was it was his sales team that were doing it. And uh, I always found him to be an amazing man and um, I'm actually glad to see him in this role. I think that it was a tough gig at 10 and, you know, where he basically had to go in and it was all cost-cutting and not real programming. And by the sounds of thing, when he's coming to seven, he said, we're not cutting costs, we're spending money. And I think that's a deliberate thing, learning – Apart from him, of what he's gone through at ten. Yeah, he has said that they can't cost cut their way to yeah. success, and he has said he's going to be putting money behind programming, particularly mm. Sunday to Tuesday at seven thirty. He said yes. that's their real problem area, and that's what they need to turn around first. Well, he's right. He's right. Next, nine CEO Hugh Marks faces the ire of his journos. So, finally, um, Hugh Marks messed up. <laughs> Had to happen sooner or later. Um, this week, he found himself on the wrong end of the questions from his journos after it emerged that a $10,000 per ticket fundraising event had been held not just at Nine's Willoughby offices, but on the set of the Today Show. Viv. How? <laughs> <laughs> That sounds like a a question for Hugh Marks. Look, it was inevitable that Hugh's incredible run of positive stories Mm. had to come to an end. You know, they had the better financial results of any media company. So far, the merger with Fairfax has had some criticism but largely has been seen as a success story he didn't he hasn't had a tim warner level scandal the former seven mm. ceo he hasn't had the ratings battle and the financial woes that channel 10 have had so he's done all right uh, but he's decided to come quite unstuck in quite a public and political way and and i guess it, it's the first real teething problem that we've seen of that culture clash that everybody said was going to happen when Nine, this big entertainment behemoth, bought the allegedly left-leaning Fairfax newspapers and that's definitely the narrative that's playing out now, big corporate evil Nine and its political buddies versus these poor Fairfax journos who just want to tell the truth without fear or favour. But doesn't it show that they could? I mean, it was Fairfax who broke the story of what was going on, so they're obviously not under the thumb where they can't 
write anything negative about the company. This is obviously the, the counterpoint that many people have raised that, well, look, you know, this broke in the AFR and the mm. Sydney Morning Herald and those journos have been very critical and they have been able to put out a statement via the union and, and run it and criticise it and hold Hugh to account. So in a way, yes, if he had tried to quash that coverage, then we would have been in a mm. much more difficult situation. But I think people do feel like, the journos, I think they're worried about what might happen next if Nine and Hugh are so cosy with the Liberal Party. I wonder also, it's just a stick for the critics of Fairfax to beat them with now in the future, the Fairfax newspapers, the critics of Nine, is any time someone doesn't like any coverage which they mm. perceive to favour the right, they'll point towards that example. Yeah, it's 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 not a great look. It wasn't a smart move from a PR point of view. And, you know, they've been saying that, well, we wanted to get in there to talk press freedom. And, and look, there's no doubt you want access to a prime minister. that You know, that, that gives you leverage. You can have a conversation that you might not be able to have with them. But it wasn't a smart move. And, and the fact that Marx has come out and said it wasn't smart, we, we regret it, I actually think is is very smart from him. And look, he has said it's really important to lobby politicians and to have their ear. And, you know, the fact is Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, is the Prime Minister at the mm. moment. Well, and you say he has said it. I mean, that's been slightly weird as well because he's sort of, rather than put out a statement or anything, it's it was a note from James Chessel from the from the organisation to his journalist saying, Hughes told me this. Yes. So it's a, which I think is because he's, he's doing a, um, a, a, a roadshow overseas at the moment of investors. But... It's a bit odd there's not been a, a direct statement. Should there be, though? Yes. Isn't that a smart way of handling it where it's not an official statement from Hugh but the word gets out there? Yeah, but all it's going to mean is everyone's going to be itching to ask Hugh about it at some point. He's going to have to talk about it. It's going to happen. The first person that gets him on the phone is going to say, but hey. That would, that would have happened anyway. But I, I think a lot of the issue comes back to that perception of money and power and that $10,000 per ticket. Mm. So in January, I was at the Australian Open courtesy of Nine mm -hmm. and I saw Hugh Marks go and sit next to Prime Minister Scott Morrison and, and they were very chummy and very chatty. Nobody got up in arms about that and, mm. you know, they kept cross putting him on the screen and, and Scott Morrison was very deliberately sipping his beer and being like, look, I'm a, I'm a laid-back dude, <laughs> just, just sipping a beer at the tennis, but he'd only sip it when he was on the screen. <laughs> but nobody got upset about that because you could tell that Hugh was working the room or, or working mm. the tennis court. It was relaxed. It was fine. I think this is more problematic just because of the money involved. Oh, it's problematic for sure. But I come back to it. We wouldn't know about this story unless the AFR had reported on it, which is Nine's own paper. So uh, I think that to me is proof positive that Nine are not controlling what they print and it is still independent. And that's the perfect example. So here's another question. It, it emerged in, I think, the the Australian afterwards on Thursday morning that there had been another fundraiser on the set of The Voice a few months before the takeover of Fairfax, if that had emerged at the time, do you reckon it could have scuppered the takeover? Mm. Like, would the would the Fairfax journos have been so up in arms? It would have. I don't think the Fairfax journos would have had the power to to stop that anyway. I'm mm. sure it would have gotten headlines and given the Australian 
you know, some, some <laughs> <laughs> more ammunition. They would have been frothing. I mean, as they said, they called the Fairfax, former Fairfax journos feral in their coverage of this, that the, the journos have gone feral. It would have given them another angle, another reason to slam their competitors. But I don't think it was big enough to have scuppered the whole deal. Next. Are we in a media recession? So this week we saw redundancies announced, or possibly announced is the wrong word. Perhaps it's emerged from both REA Group and the Foxtel sales arm MCN, multi-channel network, the rumour has it they're about to change their name and while both companies were quick to say that the redundancies were as a result of changing structures and that staff would be moved into other roles where possible it does feel like there's a little bit of doom and gloom about the state of the industry at the moment um viv your call first are we in a media recession well, as someone who's coming up for three years in the role something i can say confidently is that the industry is smaller now in late 2019 than it was when I started in December 2016. As someone who's been 30 years in the role, I can also <laughs> say that. I think we've just said that every single All year. All right, story topper. Um, <laughs> there are less people. There's been redundancies. There's been restructures across mm. creative agencies, media agencies, media owners, just across the board. It's really ramping up at the moment. And look, we're always writing redundancy and restructure stories at the moment. There are less jobs for people to go to, whether you're junior, mid-level or an executive. So I'm not an economist. I don't know when we cross the line to be in a recession, but... Two quarters of negative growth. So are you calling it, Tim? Yes. We are. Yes. Yeah, look, these... There's definitely not as many jobs going. It's definitely not a time to be job hunting in this area. And it, it does feel like even companies which have done okay are now starting to have to do the restructure and do the redundancies. Rob, does it feel chilly to you? Look, it does. And I think you see that with some of the results that are happening. You know, Seven's result is a really interesting Game changer as far as what's going to happen. I am still glad to hear that Warburton's going to spend money, though. Can I ask about MCN, though? Weren't they always destined to have redundancies after 10 took their sales arm back? Well, they sort of had one round already, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, so I think right. the difference here is that the breakup with 10 happened quite a while ago mm. now. So is this something else? And I suspect this something else is it's even further integration with Foxtel because it is now the sales house for Foxtel. It, yes. It's not In which a- case, it might as well be the sales house for News Corp. Why are there two sales houses? Well, there's a game changer. That's interesting. <laughs> Well, perhaps that's what they're announcing. So, you know, in the coming weeks, they are announcing, you know, the future of MCN and and what that looks like. There's an event in our diary for Tuesday night. We are hearing a lot about increasing uh, collaboration between Foxtel and News Corp. Indeed, some Fox Sports programming has now moved into the News Corp studio on Holt Street. Well, it had to because that was doing nothing. The redundant Your Money joint venture between Mm. Nine and News Corp. So... We are seeing a lot more synergies there and all of those buzzwords and phrases that we use around redundancies and restructures. Just remember, you heard it on Mumbrella. They <laughs> won't say it, so I will. You heard it on Mumbrella first. So, look, for MCN, they are having to reorientate for the future and it's not really a surprise that they've lost more jobs. I think the scale of 
the REA ones was more shocking for people. So 60 redundancies. REA contended to me that's not a story. 60 isn't a story. It's it's not. We're, what? We're a huge organisation. It, it's not big enough for, for you to report on. And <laughs> when it's 60 and only uh, and, and then 15 people are being redeployed, 60 is a lot of people to be out of jobs. That's that's. that's- that's PR BS. <laughs> like, sorry, that's not even spin. That's just BS. So it is huge. They say it's part of Owen Wilson, who, by the way, the greatest CEO name in media land. Uh, <laughs> it's it's part of his plan to reorientate the group and make it more digital, make it more technology focused, and get it ready for the future in the face of a, a property downturn as well. But you know, six sixty is a story, and mm. it, you know, it's a lot of people. Next. Taxi for Thinkabell. And finally for topics, 13 cabs have released a new campaign, uh, positioning itself as the official partner of everything from booty calls to Saturday mornings and from killer heels to bromances. Let's hear a clip. Hey. Hey, hon. I just dropped the kids at mum's house. Yeah. I gotta go. Where are you going? Something's come up. Viv, how'd you like that campaign from Thinkabell? <laughs> Look, Let's I... Let's start with booty calls, shall we? So, uh, first up, it should be noted that I have an inherent bias against taxis, and I think a lot of people know that, so... I don't like them. I've had some a terrible experience in a taxi from a taxi driver. So it was going to oh. be difficult to win me over with this campaign, particularly if you're focusing on women in heels, anything to do with alcohol and anything to do with sex in terms of booty calls and whatever. So they had a tough job to win me over. They didn't do it. Now uh, let's, let's describe the booty calls ad because it's a bit hard to play the, the, the clip of that one because it's, it's mainly visual rather than audio. Now, now the, the, there's a gentleman on there that, uh, you know, you'll have to help me out with the terminology, but I, I believe they're portraying him as a fuck boy. I mean, I just love that you, you've, you've said that. <laughs> I can't, can't wait to use this audio again and again and again. Look, there is a, a shirtless man in bed uh, in the dark sending a text message to his booty call, very effortless, very 2019, and, uh, you know, it would appear that then the, the woman comes running because why wouldn't you? A man's asked you over. Um, but isn't that reversed as well? Aren't there men running to the yeah, women look, there doing are, booty calls? there are. Oh, I just... I don't like – I think you're right, Tim. I think it is a bit of a fuckboy uh, thing. I would contend that taxis aren't the official partner of booty calls. I actually think people engaging in that would be far more likely to jump in an Uber than than a taxi or than to call 1-3-cabs to, to get to said fuckboy's yeah, house. You, you could take that campaign and put it on Uber or anything like that. It's not a unique campaign to the company. It's not a unique selling point to the company. I have to say, it actually made me laugh, and I, I, I didn't offend me. You know, like I, I, I feel like I've become um, the Mary Whitehouse of Australia at the moment. I'm keep going on about uh, the swearing on television and how kids can't watch it. But if my kids saw those commercials, I wouldn't be that offended. You know, like it's it, it's not overt, and it's not um, to me in your face and gratuitous. It was just a funny, you know, booty call. It just seemed. 
a bit funny. You either like it or you don't. Yeah, look, to me, I don't think it's offensive. I don't think it's crossing any lines. I just I just don't think it's very good. I just didn't enjoy it. There's another one uh, where it's the uh, official partner of Killer Heels uh, <laughs> and it has a, a woman, you know, dressed up t- to go out and struggling with her heels while her friends impatiently wait for her in the car. Oh, I don't know. I just think it's it's relying on it's relying on stereotypes. Really, the the drunk boys getting into the cab for the bromance one. These guys are marketing people. So let me ask you: there seems to be a fight against stereotypes. Don't stereotypes exist for a reason, and aren't they good as a shortcut to to sell a story? Correct. I think they are, but I think there are stereotypes that that work and then there are ones that I think are lazy. So mm-hmm. stereotypes exist for a reason because you observe human behaviour and you can find patterns if you're looking for them mm. and and you can exploit them and use them so that people feel connected to an idea and can identify with a person on screen. I think you can do that without being lazy mm-hmm. and I think that's that's the issue here. Sure, more women wear heels than men, so obviously it's going to work to have women in heels, not men and, mm. and things like that. But I just, I just think it's relying on lazy. Although you could have done that with a drag people. queen, that would have been funny. You could have, you could have. But oh, look, as I said, I'm not a fan of the campaign. But maybe, maybe you are, Tim. Look, it didn't say much to me about my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, are, are you sure? Because there's one that features, and and forgive me here, Tim. There is one that features a middle aged man uh, who is cons- a, a slightly <laughs> overweight middle aged man. I didn't say that. I said I, it. <laughs> I do not wear lycra. Oh That's the God. main difference. <laughs> uh, who, who is contemplating going for a bike ride, and then due to the discomfort of the lycra, as he unpicks his wedgie, he decides not to go for a bike ride and. Decides, a taxi decides, <laughs> that is the most bizarre ad for all of them for me because it, it seems like he's going to be the, the, the mammal, the middle-aged man in Lycra uh, to go for a ride and then decides – I've never heard that. I've never heard that. Then decides not to, so gets a cab. So, Tim, is that the, the guys jumping for a Saturday morning cab ride instead? I don't get the logic there. <laughs> oh, I'm, I can't be bothered to go for my cycle with my mates to get a latte, so I'll jump in a cab and drive around the block. What is that ad? I think that's unanswerable. <laughs> and I also think that's pretty much the end of the Mumbrella cast. Do listen to TV Black Box. It's a great podcast. I listen to it every single week. Thank you. Do listen to McKnight Tonight, which you, you don't seem to do quite as often as uh, No, that's sporadic. And it's a case of I have some already recorded that I haven't been able to get out. So uh, in the next few weeks, I will have Ash Williams and Catherine Kelly-Lang, who I just recorded today. Uh, and I'll work on getting some more. People are saying to me more McKnight Tonight, which is great. I think they just like the jingle. Um, <laughs> out of anything but um, thank you for your kindness and I, I genuinely mean it I love the Mumbrella podcast as soon as it comes up I listen to it and I was going this week where's the Mumbrella podcast and then I went oh yeah it can't be happening yet I'm recording it <laughs> I'm the star <laughs> <laughs> well I, no I'm not the star I'm just the guy who won't shut up <laughs> well that is it for this week thank you Rob and thank you Vivian thanks Toodle Pip.